0: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere
1: you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian-curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's episode of SpyCast. This week's episode is a thrilling, spy-v-spy struggle that took place during the U.S. Civil War in the city of Liverpool. At the start of the Civil War, the South had a single Navy ship, while the dockyards in Liverpool built more ships than the rest of the world combined. Charming and devious Southerner James Bullock set out to covertly build ships for the Confederate Navy while getting around a number of British laws that forbade him to do so, Quaker abolitionist Thomas Dudley, the new consul of the United States in Liverpool, set out to stop him. This is a fascinating spy story that took place thousands of miles from the Civil War battlefields. Alexander Rhodes is the author of six books, including Washington Spies, which would be the basis of the hit TV show on the Kilper Ring, well, um, congratulations on what I believe is now your sixth book. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, that book and what led you to write it? You remember the
2: old Mad Magazine strip called Spy versus Spy, We have the black spy and the white spy, and they both trying and outwit each other, and they try and outfox and, and, and outcunning each other. But I had that idea in mind that there would be these two blokes in liverpool but one union one confederate and they would just try and run rings around each other like you know tom and jerry kind of thing
1: at heart it seems to me that the story is about the plot to build a confederate navy and the union's efforts to try to stop that happening and it's a spy versus spy story at the heart of that uh, and it takes place in the city of Liverpool, which is not the first thing that would come to mind for many people, but there are very good and important reasons why Liverpool is the setting of this.
2: Uh, yeah, you pretty much hit the nail on the head there. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I like Liverpool, well, like why I was interested in doing Liverpool, is that I didn't want to write another Civil War book, you know, the kind of the blue versus the grey, and the land war, and Gettysburg, and all this kind of stuff. And what I liked about it was, is that it's set, and again, it's not set in London, which everything else is, but it's two Americans who are, you know, sort of fish out of water in Liverpool, which at the time was the greatest port metropolis in the world. They built more ships in Liverpool each year than the rest of the world combined. It was the center of the cotton exchange, futures exchanges, a colossal amount of money and power flowed through Liverpool. And again, it's, it's it's it was a major city, but people hadn't really focused on it at all. So that, that's why I wanted to set it there. I just wanted to have this sort of this civil war book that wasn't about the sort of conventional civil war as we think of it. And again, the fact that it's mostly naval rather than military is another was another sort of added bonus. But you're right, there the whole thing is the intelligence war, which again is another aspect <laughs> of the civil war that often gets overlooked.
1: And I think it's great for the the spy museum. You know, we're often trying to tell. The hidden parts of history are the things that people don't normally think about. And like you say, it's normally uh, blue v. grey. It's normally the eastern theatre of the Civil War. It's Gettysburg. But there's a whole hidden part to this war that took place. And you've uncovered one of the rather interesting stories that took place thousands of miles away from any of the battlefields.
2: Yeah, well, thanks. Again, you're completely right. I mean, the, the intelligence war or the intelligence aspect of most Wars is generally being overlooked, and in the Civil War particularly. So I mean, you tend to focus on a couple of the, you know, the big star names, you know, like Belle Boyd and Rose Greenhow and all those kind of people. But uh, you know, the fact is is that there was actually a, a, a much more important, much more critical shadow fight going on in Britain, but also in Europe. There's also scenes in France and and Belgium and so on. But most of it's in Britain because at the time was the you know the hyperpower of the world.
1: And let's go on to discuss the two main characters in the book because it's interesting the way that you do it. They're both trying to get to a certain place or trying to stop the other person getting to a certain place. So it's that classic antagonist, protagonist uh, struggle and we know the spoiler alert more generally is that the Union won the Civil War. So that's, (laughs) you know, we know that that's coming but nevertheless, just looking at that relationship where they're both trying to do something uh, or stop the other person doing something that's where the the tension and the interest of the book comes from right
2: well yeah i mean that's that's the drama of it you know history uh you know history is interesting especially when you can get this great dramatic story in the middle of it of of two very strong charactered men one of whom wants to do something, and the other one wants to stop him doing it. I mean, that's right there. That is your, you know, that, that <laughs> there, there's your conflict, as they say in in L.A. Um, you know, so that's you know that's what it, that's what attracted me, and that's what I wanted to do the book about, rather than just a general intelligence history. You have got to, you know, to, to write certain types of history books, you've got to focus on character rather than just sort of general view of it, uh, and that's what I was trying to hit here.
1: So tell us a little bit more about uh, Dudley and uh, Bullock, the two people that we're speaking about here. Give us a give us a, a pen portrait of each of them. They're very different types of men.
2: Well, that's also another attractive aspect to them. You've got the you've got you know you've got the lion, and then the fox, and they are they are combating each other. Uh, James Bullock was the Southern or Confederate agent, and he's the the fox of the title. Uh, you know, He was very cunning. He was very charming. He was very devious. He was very, very sly. And he was born in Georgia. And you know, his family, you know, they'd been there for several generations. They owned slaves. He didn't own slaves at all because he left for um, – he left, joined the U.S. Navy uh, several decades before the war and very rarely went back to the South. He was based in New York. And after leaving the Navy, he worked for a mail company running uh, steamers up and down the East Coast. So he had no property, no interests or anything in the South, but then he gets recruited into the secret world at the at the sort of opening of, of the war because he's sort of a perfect agent. He was completely clean. The Union didn't know anything about him. Yes, he does have, you know, southern views, as they say, but he was also an expert on, you know, Navy construction, ship construction, just because of his private experience. I mean, he'd commissioned ships before, he'd designed ships before, which is a very rare very rare uh, advantage in in, in that line of work. Um, He was also trustworthy. He was good with money. He was very sensible. So he gets sent over to Liverpool to commission, build, acquire, however he does it, a Confederate Navy in order to break the Union blockade and then eventually to drown the U.S. Navy ships at sea. The Lion, on the other hand, was Thomas Dudley, who was this Quaker, modest background, father was a farmer, died young. He became a local lawyer, put himself through school and so on. Didn't have the advantages that that Bullock did. What he did have was is that he had this iron, rigid abolitionist view. I mean, from decades earlier, he would do things like travel to smuggle himself down south, uh, dressed in what he regarded as a sort of a slave trader outfit with a big hat uh, and a couple of guns and so on. And he would purchase uh, slaves who had been sort of kidnapped from the north and brought south to the sort of the cotton fields and so on, and, and bring them back up north, really putting his life on that. I mean, he was a, he was a very, you know, very tough and brave man. And then uh, in the, sort of 1860 or so, he does a couple of political favors for, for Abraham Lincoln on, on his way to become president, you know, minor stuff, bit of string pulling backroom deals to get Lincoln the uh, the nomination for president. And as a reward, Lincoln says, "Look, would you like to be uh, minister to Tokyo, uh, minister to Japan, you know, like the ambassador, or would you like to be consul, which is a much lower ac- uh, diplomatic post, to Liverpool?" And the, Dudley chooses Liverpool only because he wanted to be near good doctors, uh, because he'd gone through this sort of traumatic accident several years previously, where he'd been. He'd almost drowned in an icy river and he'd been revived at the last minute. So he wanted to be near good doctors. And he thought also this, you know, being a consul, he'd just be there for about a year and then come home back to his little law practice and, and so on. And it ended up turning out that he was there for the next four or five years fighting this intelligence war against
1: Bullock. And quite interestingly, uh, Bullock, he had—he has quite an an interesting nephew uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Teddy Roosevelt, as you point out in the book, really idolizes his uncle.
2: Oh yeah, he was to to Teddy to a very to a young Teddy Roosevelt. He was good old Uncle Jimmy, who had this great stock of sea stories and was very entertaining and amusing, and had a lot of experience with with naval affairs. And for Roosevelt's um, you know big breakthrough book on naval power, sea power in the nineteenth in the late nineteenth century. Um, you know, Bullock was one of his kind of readers. I mean, he gave him a lot of advice. And so the book is dedicated to Bullock, which is which is quite interesting. But what's left out of it is that, you know, Bullock, you know, had been on the other side, so to speak. <laughs> so it was conveniently left out of the dedication. But, uh, you know, no, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was, uh, you know, they used to visit each other occasionally after the war.
1: And it's quite interesting that Dudley, he gets offered to be the ambassador to Japan or the... Consul to Great Britain and Liverpool. Um, but, and at the time in the book, you point out that Liverpool is arguably the most violent crime ridden place in Europe. And it doesn't, <laughs> on the surface, it doesn't seem like much of a competition over which one to go to. But nevertheless, there he goes. Uh, and just help me understand this when Dudley takes it up, is Bullock already there? And does he know that he's going to oppose Bullock, or is that just something that transpires when both of them are living there?
2: Uh, that transpires while they're living there. Bullock had been over there for several months before he got there. Very quite early in the war, about you know April, May, eighteen sixty-one, and was you know, running the roost. I mean, when I say Liverpool was you know the, was the most sort of violent city, you know, really crime-ridden city in probably maybe the world. I don't know, um, not just Europe. Um, you know, for Bullock, it was fantastic. I mean, he loved it there because it was basically his, his town um, in the sense that when he went over there, he remarked that there was more Confederate bunting around and more Confederate flags in Liverpool than there were in Richmond. Um, th- this was friendly territory to him. All of the merchant princes there, all of the, the big cotton uh, traders, all of the shipbuilders, these guys were to a man pro-confederate I mean they, they would just usher him in and he could he could do anything on so for, for Bullock Liverpool was was a great place to live. For Dudley who came over later and uh, by that time uh, for various reasons uh, Bullock was actually had actually gone back to the Confederacy for, for a time and got stuck there. so when when Dudley comes over, Bullock apparently is long gone and it's just going to be a quiet little post. You know he's going to be the consul, you know the consul uh Nathaniel Hawthorne, the great writer, had been consul to Liverpool in the eighteen fifties and then had a good time. He's basically spend your time going to you know wine and cheese parties at various you know merchants' houses and shaking hands and occasionally bailing some drunken sailor out of prison who's spent all his money i mean that's a cent <laughs> giving him a passport back to America. It's really not a very onerous or burdensome job, so when he gets there. Uh, you know, within a couple of months, he discovers, uh, that Bullock is back in town and the, you know, the race is on. And so, uh, Dudley has to learn very quickly, you know, how Liverpool works. And it's a tough, tough city to work in. And so that's what he, so he has to come up to speed. But for, for a long time, Bullock was just outplaying him at every single turn. It's like, um, the book Washington Spies, you know, New York was almost a character in its own right in the book. And in this one, Liverpool is too. So I I like to um, distinguish between Bullock's Liverpool and Dudley's Liverpool, the two very different places. One of them's fantastic, and the other one is this (laughs) sort of of awful hellhole that he just wished he could leave (laughs) at the earliest possible opportunity.
1: Yeah, and just to put that in a bit more context for our listeners, uh, so Liverpool, Glasgow, where I'm from, Bristol... Those ports on the west side of the island of Britain, they all become important after the, the new world, uh, after 1492 and Columbus's trip. And, and then as, the, as there's a more Atlantic world developing, then those ports on the west side of Britain become important. And I think Glasgow goes on to succeed Liverpool as the, the preeminent shipbuilding port. But there, there, there's that part there because as you point out in the book... You know, for a long period of time, Liverpool wasn't the city that it went on to become during the Civil War or or even that it is now. And just a couple of facts that you point out in the book. So modern-day New York, 27,000 people per square mile, which is by far the most densely populated city in the United States. But Liverpool at this time, by some reckoning, was 660,000 people per square mile so that's 24 times more dense than New York City which is just insane when you think about it and then you point out that within 150 yards of the sailors home there's 46 pubs I mean 46 <laughs> pubs that's, that's wonderful that, that sounds wonderful to many people but I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure it was crazy as well and it seems like it was more as you pointed out it's more Bullocks type of town. For a stern Quaker abolitionist, it's not really, you know, it's not really a, a welcoming environment. Uh, so I think that that's quite interesting. Liverpool is a character in the book, but it's also interesting the way that it interacts with the other two main human characters in the book.
2: Yeah, I mean, Liverpool is such an interesting place. I mean, we ha- we tend to have a vision now of, oh, that's where George and Paul and Ringo and uh, and John are from. But the, you know, at the time, Liverpool was one of the greatest cities in the world. Um, As I said, I think I said earlier that it built more ships there than the rest of the world combined. Um, It was also the center of cotton trading. And that's that is a key factor here because the South's main export, the product that that kind of fuels the sinews of, of the Confederate war effort is cotton. Millions and millions of bales of cotton uh, being exported each year for decades and decades and decades, most of which goes to Liverpool. And at Liverpool, they have uh, they they develop a, a cotton exchange, basically the, the, one of the earliest commodities exchanges where they were developing futures contracts and things like. That, pretty advanced stuff at the time, and uh, from there it gets sold out to various manufacturers, uh, factories, all that kind of stuff, where it's then uh, refined, made into high-quality clothing and, and other textiles, and then re-exported to the rest of the world. Uh, this is a huge, cotton is a huge industry, the biggest by far in Britain. Um, it's kind of almost sort of forgotten about nowadays. But um, but the fact is, that, I mean, they, they say something like, uh, you know, I can't remember the exact statistic, but a, a large, a kind of a majority of the British population is somehow indirect or directly reliant on the cotton industry. Um, it's a huge business, and the South supplies about 98% of that cotton. Without that cotton, you could say the British economy would have you know, a national heart attack. I mean, if that suddenly got cut. Now, the British, in the meantime, are trying to develop they, – they realize their own re- uh, over-dependence on, on a, a bunch of plantation guys in uh, – <laughs> in the South. Uh, so they're trying to develop Egyptian and Indian cotton through the empire, but the stuff just doesn't have the quality of Southern cotton. It just simply doesn't. It wouldn't have it from the 10 or 15 years. It takes a long time to develop these kind of industries.
1: Tell us a little bit more about King Cotton, cotton diplomacy, or white gold, as you call it in the book, because that's, that's really at the center of all of this. For the South, they're very reliant on that. Britain is very reliant on it. So it seems that at one level, it's obvious that the South mm-hmm. and Britain are going to link up because they've got this mutual, uh, mutually shared interest in, in cotton, but it's not quite as simple as that, is it? And also Britain begins to, although it's not of the same quality, they begin to bring in a lot more cotton from different places, which the South doesn't foresee. It almost reminds me a little bit like when Russia invaded Ukraine and, and Germany and other countries are like, you know, maybe we don't want to be reliant on one country for all of this stuff because if, if something happens, then we're exposed. So just walk us through that, the cotton geopolitics almost of the American Civil War and, and the role that it plays in the relationship with Britain.
2: Uh, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a big question. The You know, cotton was the South's biggest export. It's basically its only export. Uh, and its biggest customer, one of its only customers, was Britain. So if you were a southern uh, plantation owner or you were you know, a southern politician, you know, you – before the war, you believed that if war came, Britain and the south were natural allies against the north, uh, which wasn't popular in England anyway. Because uh, you know, Lincoln was regarded as a as a tariff man uh who was only interested in protecting northern manufacturers. Uh the Brits at the time were were heavily in favor of free trade. You know, the southern aristocrats were in favor of free trade too. So everything is a natural alliance. And as I mentioned, when Bullock that's one of the reasons why when Bullock goes to Liverpool, he sees all these <laughs> Confederate flags around. Uh, Within Britain, the British attitudes towards the South and the North were or on the Civil War for that moment, for that part, were, you know, there were this odd mixture. Um, Most at the beginning of the and they would change over time. Most of the people, you know, especially the upper classes in in Britain, had a kind of romantic attachment to the South before the war. They were so-called gentlemen just like them. Uh, You know, they owned large properties, but, you know, it was kind of assumed that, you know, over the next decade or two, uh, there would be a lot of manumission. This whole antique institution of slavery would kind of just go away and we could get back to business. There's also an idea of, you know, the South being an underdog and the North picking on them and bullying them and all this kind of stuff. On the other hand, there was also this competing problem of... If you are running an empire like the British, do you really want to be encouraging small underdogs to start rebelling against the central power of, say, Washington or London? I mean, for instance, if the South can rebel against the North, then why can't your colonies in the West, in the Caribbean, rebel also? So there was a little bit of a restraint on on getting too excited about Southern rebellion. Um, there was also an aspect of, well, you know, look these guys have just they didn't get what they wanted now they've gone off and started a war and you know now they're trying to drag us into it so the basic british attitude the official british attitude was one of strict neutrality strict neutrality as well meaning we're going to wait and see to see who's winning and then we'll <laughs> we'll come in on that side that was you know just just the usual great power politics france had the exact same policy on this there's also a lot of confusion about what on earth this civil war was all about. I mean nobody really understood nobody really understood it. So it was just, regardless of this regarded this as kind of one of these you know occasional breakouts of insanity among their sort of colonial cousins across the pond. Um, so best is to stay out of this. Complicating all of this was the cotton issue. And as as we would talked about before, you know, Britain was heavily reliant on southern cotton. So they had to be they had to maintain the flow of cotton in order to keep their own economy uh, on, on the straight and narrow. And the problem is is that the southern plantation, the southern governing class, also, were also very, very aware of this. So in, I think in one of the great mistakes of the south, I mean, you could say they made a lot of mistakes, but this is one of the biggest ones, is that they imposed a cotton embargo near the begin, after a few months of the war, and that they held back their cotton supplies. In order, the, the thinking being that it would bring the Brits to their senses after this ridiculous neutrality proclamation, and they would come in on their side, and there would be this grand Anglo-Confederate alliance. The Royal Navy would come over and, and blow away Lincoln's little ships blockading the South, uh, while Southern armies uh, struck north like a blitzkrieg, and British armies came down from. Uh, you know, came down from Canada and relived the the war of 1812 with maybe burning Washington or something like that, and kicking the impertinent Lincoln to the curb. So there's a great scheme going on here, but there's a problem with this is that you don't usually twist a lion's tail like that. What it did was instead of bringing the British in on the southern side, it annoyed the British. Greatly, because they could see when they were being trying to be manipulated into a war they didn't really want. So, yes, they begin, as you mentioned, to try and accelerate efforts to grow their own cotton, especially in Egypt and, and India. And, it, you know, it didn't work out for the time being, but they, you know, over, over the next decade or so or several years, those imports began to grow considerably. You know, then the South also made a huge mistake in this cotton embargo and that they also needed the money from the cotton being sold in Liverpool. So they suddenly not only annoyed Britain, but they also starved themselves of the financing needed to run a war. And that's where Bullock came in and that he was always he was always looking around for sources of financing. And that's how he got into this kind of dark financing with this rather shady uh, front bank in Liverpool which I talk about in the book, and it becomes like a, a, a gun and cotton smuggling scheme.
1: We'll be right back after this.
0: And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. Visit zscaler.com slash Zero Trust
1: It's quite interesting, that on-go, uh, having an embargo, and then the blockade goes up, and then you can't get rid of the stuff that you've embargoed. So, yeah, that seems like quite a significant on-goal at the beginning but I guess all of this is on the presumption that the British just can't do without the cotton they're so addicted to it so to speak that they have to get access to it so they have to make terms so I think that that's quite interesting. The other thing that I think is quite interesting is so it's something like three and a half thousand miles of coastline in the south that the Union Navy has to cade. but in reality it's more simple than that it's it's really seven ports: uh, Norfolk, Wilmington, Savannah, Charleston, uh, Gaveston, Mobile, and New Orleans. So really, there's only those seven ports there that they have to uh, keep the stranglehold on. And and the South begins the war with only one ship. This is where the the Confederate Navy in your book becomes so interesting because you know the, this is strangling the life out of the southern war plan because of this issue. So, so getting a navy or getting blockade runners or commercial ships that are going to har- harass commercial ships and so forth is is really, really important. So actually, Bullock's mission is, in many ways, it's, it's kind of central to the, to the whole outcome of the war, even though maybe it's not thought of in those terms.
2: Exactly. I mean, the, uh, you know, the naval aspect of many wars is is often downgraded in terms of, you know, in terms of interest in the land, you know, the great land decisive clashes. But the attritional struggle at sea during the civil war is, is extremely important. And as you say, you know, Bullock exemplifies that. The Union blockade, you know, what the beginning was full of holes. You can't guard three and a half, four thousand miles of coastline uh, with just the handful of ships that the US Navy had. The South knows this. What the South didn't work out was is that as the Union Admirals worked out fairly quickly, is it as you said, you just have to block the major ports and then you cut off ninety-five percent of the international trade. So that's where you that's where Bullock needs to start buying up and commissioning a huge number of blockade runners. These are smaller, very fast ships that would sneak in and out of southern ports, go to somewhere like the Bahamas or Nassau. Nassau was the sort of the centre centre of all of this trade. Uh, it's quite an amazing place, Nassau, during the Civil War. And then they would be transshipped over to Liverpool.
1: And it's it's almost as if it's a battle of the Atlantic. Uh, way before the Second World War Battle of the Atlantic because the Atlantic as a, a theatre of the conflict is, is foundational because if the South can't get money, if it can't get arms, if it can't supply its armies, then it, it slowly is going to get worn down. It's almost like kryptonite. It just slowly drains the energy away from it and for the union this is central to their strategy as well you know we know what happens now but uh, at various points there's people in the north that want to you know reach out or try to settle it or or for the war to come to an end so um there's the, the period where it's it's kind of critical and this is this is not the the kind of Thing that people necessarily gravitate towards, like the Battle of Gettysburg or you know Shiloh or something like that. But but this is a, a more grand strategic level. This is this is really central to the to the Civil War because if we look at the time period when it is, it isn't a welling. You know, it isn't the Battle of Waterloo type affair. It is becoming more industrialized: trains, communications, telegraphs. Uh, just the sheer number of people that are involved as well compared to the Battle of Waterloo. It's like, what, you know, 30,000 people on the field or something. We're talking huge numbers of people that, that are involved in the Civil War. So I, I just think it's really, really interesting that your book touches on that bigger strategic role of the maritime theatre and the eventual outcome of the American Civil War. And we don't have time to go into that uh, a ton, but I just find it really, really interesting. So uh, thanks for bringing it that's up. Part and, yeah, that's part is, two. Man. Yeah, that's part two. Stay tuned. Same time next week. <laughs> so let, let, let's go on to, you know, our two main uh, figures, Dudley and Bullock. Can you give our listeners an example when the two of them butted up against each other so we've spoke at a more general level we've spoke about Britain and the, and the south but for Dudley and Bullock and Liverpool is there some example maybe a specific ship or a specific operation or some covert enterprise where the two of them were struggling against each other to try to prevent or, or make something happen
2: yeah, they were constantly doing it. They, uh, the interesting thing was I never I never found a record of them meeting. I mean, it's a small town. Their their sort of relative their different headquarters were not very far away from each other. They must have seen each other, and uh, you know, over time, but they just kept this distance between between each other. The their biggest clash was over. Uh, a ship known that would become known and feared as as the Alabama, which was a, uh, a you know the the, the cotton ra- uh, the, the commerce raider. Uh, Bullock what tended what Bullock tended to do was he would use front companies he would use cover stories and so on to build the ships. Uh, it's a complicated uh, you know subject but essentially you could not build warships or anything that even looked like a warship, you know or was armed as a warship in a British port for, uh, you know, competence in which Britain is neutral, uh, for a different theater. So he always had to disguise his ships as, you know, kind of civilian merchantmen. And the plan was, is that you would do all that. You would recruit a a civilian crew from Liverpool who allegedly didn't know what was going on. You, everyone had to pretend to be completely innocent and ignorant of, of any, but of course they all knew uh, the ship, that ship would then go out somewhere way beyond British jurisdiction, somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic, uh, where it would rendezvous with a, a smaller ship, like just an old tender or an old freighter that was filled with armaments. And the weird thing was, you could buy arms in Britain, but you couldn't <laughs> build ships. Uh, and then they would rendezvous out uh, of sight of Her Majesty's government and. The arms and the cannons and the cannonballs and the shrapnel and all this kind of stuff would be transfor- would be transferred over to the so-called civilian ship. Uh, then a Confederate crew would arrive, uh, you know, Confederate officers would arrive and uh, you know oversee this this operation. And then all of a sudden, miraculously, uh, you would have a Confederate armed vessel at sea. You see. Uh, and be renamed as as in this case uh you know the Alabama. Uh Dudley is on to this uh in in Liverpool, but it's very, very difficult to break through this the these these walls of secrecy that Bullock constructed. Remember, he had all the shipyards in his pocket, he had all the shipyard owners in his pocket. They were all so everyone was this great conspiracy of silence. Uh, so, uh, Dudley has to sort of hire his own spies and detectives to try and, and, to sneak in there and try and get information and so on. And he has to prove it. He has to prove it legally. This is the thing. It's not just about, uh, it's not James Bond where he gets the, the MacGuffin and suddenly the world is saved. I mean, Dudley, and he's not going to go around assassinating people. It's just not that kind of, that kind of game. He has to put together a dossier. He has to put together legal documents, affidavits, all this kind of stuff. And go through the embassy in London, which then has to persuade the Foreign Office uh, and the and the British government to act to bring, you know, cases against these shipyard owners for breaking the um, for breaking the law. It's known as the Foreign Enlistment Act uh, for building ships for a competent nation. So these guys, so Bullock and Dudley are constantly, you know, circling each other, trying to, you know, trying to look for the weaknesses, trying to exploit each other, trying to send in spies. Uh, you know, Bullock, for his part, is is always got his eyes on Bullock. Um, at one point, you know, Dudley is sending in a, a detective named McGuire to go, you know, pick up gossip in in taverns and so on about what exactly this this mysterious ship is going to be. Uh, whereas at the same time, Bullock gets a coup when he somehow recruits a clerk in Dudley's solicitor's office, who then sends him <laughs> sends him long and detailed notes of exactly what Dudley's about to do. And so, and I reproduced these, I actually found the original copies from this clerk mentioning it to, you know, detailing everything that, uh, that Dudley was about to do, which is one of the reasons why Dudley thinks that, that, for a long time, Bullock's a magician. I mean, the guy can see around corners. He seems to know everything he's about to do, and he can't figure it out until it comes clearer later that really, Bullock's just a cheap conjurer. You know, he had this inside man, and once Dudley found it out, then he cuts him off, and suddenly Bullock isn't quite as brilliant and as clever as he as he was sort of masquerading. Um, so it's this very interesting sort of dynamic between the two, but with Dudley, with Bullock trying to Construct a ship very, very secretly, you know, not and not antagonising the British government in any way. Um, and Dudley trying to penetrate that that secrecy and to try and you know bring him to heel and to get the government to act and to and to take down Dudley. So that uh, Bullock, sorry. So that's that's the essential sort of fight between them. But that goes on for quite a long time. And again, they just have round after round after round, and m- most of the time Dudley loses. Until he doesn't, and then he finally breaks Bullock um, over the Rams issue, and and that's the end of the Confederate shipbuilding uh, shipbuilding uh, effort.
1: With the the Dudley Bullock contest, they're developing sources, uh, what we would call agents. Uh, there's there the, the, there's a lot of secrecy and espionage and and so forth going on, and in London. Uh, there's Victor Buckley. Can you tell us a little bit more about him? He's quite an interesting figure and it's quite a nice segue because I see in the background, Alexander, you've got the charge of the Scots greys from the Battle of Waterloo. So I know that Buckley's grandfather, or was it father, was a veteran of the Battle of Waterloo, but tell us a little bit more about him. He's quite a colourful and interesting uh, figure.
2: Well, one of the reasons why Dudley couldn't couldn't understand how Bullock always seemed to know what he was about to do. Just when he, you know, he was about to snap shut that mouse trap, Bullock would always escape. He'd always wriggle out, get away at the last second. And it would turn out, and I, it sort of I investigate this in the book that Bullock had an inside man. He had an he had his own mole, to use a slightly anachronistic expression, in the Foreign Office. This mole. You know, he wasn't southern. He was kind of a—he was a romantic young man uh, who needed the money uh, and had a romantic attachment to to the South.
1: And he was Queen Victoria's grandson, right? Uh, Godson, Is that right? Godson, so that Godson was sorry. Godson, why sorry. It was, why it was
2: uh, slightly—it like would—it would have been an embarrassing moment, and the the Union didn't push it. You know, they—they they still need to be
0: friends.
1: So, I mean, there's so much stuff that I would like to get into, but we don't have time to go into them all. But could you tell us a little bit more about Henry Sanford, the de facto chief of union intelligence in Great Britain? Uh,
2: well, Sanford Sanford's one of these great Victorian characters, um, you know, one of these great adventurers. And he, you know, who, he was there in the first year of the war, this before Dudley got there. And he was... Yeah, he was sort of de facto head of union intelligence in, in Britain and Europe, but especially in Britain. And Sanford's an interesting interesting guy uh, who, you know, I'm very fond of him, but he was one of these people who just loved dirty tricks and uh, covert operations and sabotage and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and, you know, he just loved that kind of underworld aspect um, and his appearance sort of belied that. He just looks like this mild-mannered fellow with a pair of, you know, spectacles. You know, his heart was in the right place. He was very pro-union. You know, he's very patriotic, manages to sort of squeeze himself into this job because he just loves doing it. And he loves being secretive. I mean, the weird thing was is that he had fingers in many pies. He wasn't just working in Britain. He was also sending, on his own account, sending uh, weapons and munitions to Garibaldi, the the Italian great Italian liberator whose war was going on at the same time. So he was, he was doing a lot of things at the same time. Um, the problem with, with Sanford is, is that he was, he, he, he was very, very good at what he did, but he just, he wasn't, he wasn't brilliant and too many things went wrong and he was too ambitious. And saying things like, um, uh, you know, hey, you know what we should do? We should just kidnap all of these Confederates in Britain and send them back home for a hard interrogation. And saying that to the American minister Charles Francis Adams, the American ambassador in London, whose job it was was to keep things very cool with Britain. Um, you know, that sort of thing is, you know, you know would have just bl- blown everything up the, the whole diplomatic effort and could was calculated to drive London into Richmond's hands. You know, Sandford would do things like, you know what we should do, you know, anytime we hear about these Confederate ships carrying weapons, we should just sink them in the Thames, really make an example of them. <laughs> uh, you know, it was all this kind of crazy stuff. And he had all these, you know, strange comrades, you know, sort of sort of rackety adventurers and mercenaries. He had a, he had a lot of, you know, friends like that. Um, it all goes disastrously wrong. And, so he gets sent back home, you know, tail between his legs, basically fired by Charles Francis Adams. He just says, I'm not going to deal with this, this guy anymore. He's too crazy. Uh, and that's when, and so when Dudley comes over shortly after, you know, I think a week or two after, after Sanford gets sent home, you know, he's instructed by Adams, whatever you do, don't rock the boat. No covert missions, nothing untoward. Just keep an eye on the confederates uh which is what Dudley tries to do until he gets dragged in by Bullock who's, who as as we said who comes back soon afterwards and then the spy war really again, so he has to he has to uh run his own you know spy ne- he has to invent his own intelligence you know uh intelligence effort against Bullock
1: I have to say I feel like Henry Sanford would be a good person to go to the pub to for with a, for a few hours, you know, anybody that calls themselves the black crow has got to have a personality. Um, <laughs> and you mentioned, I think was like, it was like
2: it's one of those nicknames that he obviously tried to popularize to make himself sound
1: like <laughs> <cool. laughs> And, um, you mentioned briefly there Charles Adams, and we don't have time to go into him, but he's interesting as well, he's in London. Uh, as the main representative of the United States. And he's the son of John uh, Quincy Adams and the grandson of John Adams. Uh, so that's, that, I think that's quite interesting. Uh, and just moving on to the overall result of all of this, so how consequential do you think this struggle between Dudley and Bullock was? Uh, how How much did this shape the course of the war? Is it? Is it an interesting story that's a constituent part of the overall outcome? Or can we detect, uh, you know, will it actually push the scale this way or the other way? Like, what's your take on how consequential this was? And this is always a difficult question, especially for espionage history. Uh, But yeah, what's what's your take on that?
2: Uh, Yeah, the problem with some intelligence history is that uh, sometimes it's a bit, uh, I think that ESOPs, fable where the, the fly alights on a chariot wheel and and declaims upon how much dust he's raising it's a little <laughs> some, but in this case that's that you know it, the bullock versus dudley um it, uh, story is it's it's really it's not the fly it's it is actually the chariot wheel in the sense that this was extremely consequential in it, and by that i mean by stopping Bullock, by, if, 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 put it this way, if Dudley hadn't stopped Bullock, if Dudley hadn't existed and Bullock had created this massive fleet of blockade runners and had built more and more commerce raiders like the Alabama and the Florida and had then sent his ironclad rams to sea, what you're looking at there is, is that there would have been a huge amount of pressure on Lincoln. You know, to prevent a collapse of U.S. naval power, many more sinkings of of, of American merchant vessels. You would have had, uh, you know, much larger inflows of uh, arms and weapons and, and so on at at key times into the South. Uh, and the biggest the biggest uh, the biggest change of all would have been that it would have that having the the sea lanes open like that would have you would have allowed the fight the south to fight on much longer than it actually did and more to the point remember the south doesn't have to win the war in order to win it just has to not lose it has to again this uh, this is southern strategy it has to persuade the north that this war is going to go on forever that there will this is a slow attritional struggle more and more of your boys aren't going to come home. And for what? You're losing, you know, we're sinking your ships. Uh Britain is is kind of on our side. Eventually, Britain might come in once it gets annoyed that it can't trade freely with, with us. And then you're going to be dealing with the Royal Navy.
1: Wow. And one thing that I wanted to pick up on, and uh, I'd like to circle back to it, Brit- British public opinion. So you mentioned there that Liverpool was a pro confederate town generally speaking uh, what was what was it like across the rest of the country did it depend by region or social status or did the elites have a different opinion from the ordinary folk because i know that during this period uh, so the the british empire abolishes slavery Uh, In 1807, so I'm assuming by this point it's really normalised, or or slavery is really seen as something that's not, you know, not something that we want to be involved with, and and there's also like really strong religious impulses during this era as well. So I'm just wondering where where does the, you know, not that there's any Gallup polls for this or anything, but what's your sense of? that depend by region or, or, or class or, or outlook or yeah. What's your what's your reading of the the British public during the American Civil War?
2: Uh, British public opinion during the war is a malleable, very interesting uh, phenomenon. Uh, it used to be that it used to be said, uh, especially during the sort of the, when you know the Marxist interpretation of history was much more popular, that the, the great British working class was always in favour of freedom. And, and and the North. And it was only the, you know, the effete aristocrats who, <laughs> you know, in the, in the, and the corrupt uh, businessmen who liked the South. And so that's a kind of a, that's uh, a rather dated and, and, and uh, dated view. It doesn't really work like that. What is more interesting is how public opinion shifts over the course of the war, not only from the bottom, but from the top as well. At the beginning of the war, the vast majority of the, of the population, you know, were didn't really care that much. I mean, there, there was nobody who who liked slavery. I mean, there was I, there's nobody in Britain who goes, "Yeah, slavery is great. We got to do we got to reintroduce it here." Um, there was nobody who said that. But they they just it was more, well, you know, it'll go away. It'll it'll erode over time. It will erode. You know, just as we did it, we did, we, we abolished it, but it took, you know, decades for it to actually go away. You know, landowners had to be, or slave owners had to be compensated, all this kind of stuff. Uh, it's a slow process. And the default, therefore, is that we'll just keep on doing business with the South. One reason being is that all these great working class jobs in these factories that we've industrialized uh, all depend on cotton and they'll get restless, <laughs> as they say, if we start, um, you know, cutting off that cotton, you know, they're going to, they need food too. They need, uh, they need to put bread on the table. So you have, but you have a small uh, population of usually religious dissenters, you know, Quakers, as we mentioned before, uh, Presbyterians, all this kind of stuff, uh, Methodists uh, who were quite abolitionist, you know, very abolitionist um, and didn't want to argue against Southern slavery and said it, it would, it wouldn't, it wouldn't just go away. It would always, it would always stay. But at the beginning of the war, they're just not listened to. I mean, the vast majority of the House of Commons and the House of Lords, you know, they were all, they were all pro, pro-Southern. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was a pretty, quite a marvel that the, the, the actual government managed to get through a neutrality proclamation to tell you the truth. It would have been a lot easier to declare for the South, which is what most of the politicians wanted. But what's interesting is that in about 1863, with the um, Emancipation Proclamation, it is, it, is a, it is there is a moral turnabout. When Lincoln first announced his intentions to emancipate the slaves, quite a few people, because it was going to take place several months hence, most people didn't quite believe it. They thought, oh, he's just, you know, He's, of course, he's just saying. He's just a politician. Um, they really didn't have any idea that Lincoln actually did mean it. So when he when he actually does it, you, there's this. It's almost like this this lightning touches the British population. And Dudley mentions this. He says, you know, when he's in Liverpool, I mean, he had a couple of friends there, sort of dissenters like himself, sort of thing. Uh, they probably had their little tea parties in, in, a, in a deserted and windy church hall somewhere. But once emancipation. Actually happens. The you know, the, the, there's like the working the working class actually does realize that you know that um, and and many of the you know the middle and upper classes it becomes this great cru- It becomes a crusade, and there's this huge jump in the number of anti-slavery rallies and gatherings and attendances. And Dudley notices that even in Liverpool, which is the heart of Confederate feeling that after uh, early 1863 he goes to meetings there and there's thousands of people in uh in the in the local um sort of meeting halls and they're cheering the name of Lincoln it becomes a huge and it's at that point that the tide of opinion is beginning to shift against Bullock see Bullock's had it easy all this time you see it's easy I mean he's got he's got the, he's got Britain on his side he's very popular after that, he's struggling uphill because, and Dudley, exploit, uh, Dudley exploits this, you see, because he's got the, the tide of public opinion is, 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 is turning inexorably against the South, which makes the British government more likely to start clamping down on uh, you know, Confederate undercover business with these ships. So it's, a, it's an interesting point about the British public opinion. It, it, go, it changes over the course of the war. It can go up and down depending on who's winning.
1: And the the Alabama, we don't have t- time to go into it in depth, but the Alabama is quite interesting. The commerce raider uh, in the book, you point out that in one six month period, it burns ten ships to not to the ground to the sea. Uh, it basically just blitter them, and and the captain captain seems he's a particularly odious fellow. He throws. Uh, any African Americans that are found in any of the ships, he just throws them into the sea to drown and so forth. Um, so, th- so that uh, that is very effective in its own terms. But ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, these are not any more than a nuisance, really. Uh, is that is that fair to say?
2: Uh, they're a large nuisance. They're essentially going back to a point you mentioned before. Um, they're essentially, you know, like the U-boats of. The Second World War, especially when uh, you know the, the 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 submarines attacked the east eastern seaboard of the United States in in early 1942 for several months, and they kind of wreaked havoc. They sunk a lot of tankers, a lot of freighters uh, in, in 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 the southern cave, They you know they devastated a lot of of uh, uh, American merchant vessels in the in the navy in merchant vessels. The problem is is that that stuff unless it shocks the enemy immediately into, into, into submission, which was the intent because they, you know, they all, you know, like the Germans and the South, they, they always assume that if you just sink a lot of <laughs> freighters and tankers and so on, uh, you know, it will, it will collapse uh, the enemy's public opinion. What it actually does is, is, is it, it just reinforces it after the initial shock of, Oh my goodness, what's happening here. Um, and in the civil war case, Uh, You know, you can sink a lot of merchant ships, but you're mostly sinking stuff like, you know, coffee imports or exports or, uh, you know, um, you know, supplies of lumber and tea and all this kind of stuff. That's that's great. And it probably causes a lot of northern merchants a bit of annoyance. And but at the same time, you can't win a war like that. It's just—it's you're simply not sinking war material. You're sinking everyday pantry goods uh, that can be that they can afford to replace. Uh, While at the same time you're uh, you're burning through your armies on the battlefield, and you're rapidly—you you you have a very relatively small industrial base. You can't manufacture uh, you know, useful stuff like, uh, railway engines and, uh, you know, battleships and things like that, or even that many guns. And you're running out, you're running out of men at the same time. So it's, 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 these, these things are, um, you know, they're, uh, you know, they're, they, they just simply can't win wars unless Bullock had managed to, to build dozens of these things. And, and, you know, Lincoln hadn't been able to to fend off a lot of, Sort of, um, uh, sort of uh, uh, peace talk, and just wanted to keep on fighting. So I think that's that's the the, the, the key difference.
1: And it, it seems to me that the the weight and value that each side would give to the maritime component is different as well. Because for the North, I'm sure, if you're a serious nuisance and you sink lots of ships with pantry goods, then. You know, that's certainly not an optimal outcome, but it's not devastating to our war effort. Most, you know, we've got an industrial base. We're creating most of our own arms, but you're relying on cotton and on exporting it to get money to bring in supplies and armaments and industrial goods. And you can't do that. So, so it's almost like for one side, it's, it's much more pivotal than for the other. Okay, well, thanks ever so much for your time. This has been a blast, and uh, yeah, there's a lot more we could speak about, but I think we've done a pretty good job. And um, I should say to listeners, you have a, a Substack newsletter that listeners can subscribe to. Can you tell our listeners the name of it?
2: Oh, it's called Spionage, and it's on Substack, and it's free. Uh, always, always good to hear. Um, you know, it's just a, it's basically um, you know, I've, you know, over the decades I've collected you know, a colossal number of of, uh, PDFs and books and so on on intelligence, historical intelligence and espionage. And all it's doing is is sitting in a database. And, uh, you know, I was sort of hovering over it like sort of Smaug and the dragon and his gold. So I thought, you know, I've got to do something with this. And so I started this Substack newsletter. It comes out every couple of weeks or, you know, more or less. Um, and it's just you know I just take a you know I look into my into into the into the database and I find something interesting about historical espionage, um, you know and I put together and I put together a you know a a, a post about it you know kind of a you know lengthy one and you know every and I send it out to subscribers so anyone who's interested in in any kind of historical espionage and I range around you know there's stuff going on in ancient Assyria I've got stuff on the 15th century 19th century you know, some 20th century stuff. and writing one now on a, on a, on a, on a first world war spy, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I I range around a little bit I you know, I find it interesting. It's my little hobby. Um, but if anyone else wants to, uh, uh, you know, read it or they're interested, then, you know, sign up. Um, I mean, it's free. I mean, I mean, Really, I mean, you can't
1: really. Nothing to lose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. You've got nothing to lose but your time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thanks ever so much. This has been a lot of fun, and I hope to meet you in person one day, Alexander.
2: Same here. All right, great. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at spy Historian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show.